All right, grab up your Bible and open it up to John. And uh, if you don't have one, they're in the back. If you do have one, but you want to take one, they're in the back. If you know somebody that doesn't have one, but should have one, they're in the back. So feel free to take them. We have plenty, and we will always have plenty. So you're going to find the book of John. It's in the New Testament, the fourth book. So it's towards the back of the whole book of the Bible, but not all the way. And uh, we've been following the story of God for a pretty good while. I'm not going to recap the whole thing. Uh, but the entire Old Testament that we have covered has pointed us towards one person, and that's the Messiah. That's Jesus. And we are now at the time where Jesus is alive. He is on the earth, and we are dealing with the Messiah being here. And the title is today, Crossing Boundaries. And you'll see what I mean by crossing boundaries in a second. So grab your Bible, uh, turn to John 4. Let me read a few verses here, and then we'll get in. So it says in verse 7, A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealing with Samarians. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Lord, again, it's your word. I say every week it's your word. It's not my word. Uh, I talk about it. I discuss it. I share what you've shared with me. I I share what I've discovered in in your word. But, Lord, it's your word that matters. It's your word that's the authority. And I pray today as we dig into it and study it that you're glorified by it, not me. And that I walk away having learned from it just as much as anybody in the room. I love you, Lord, and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I know racism is everywhere. I know that. I know it's all over the place here, and I'm not trying to lord this like a trophy, but I've never been anywhere in my life where it's as prominent as the South, and maybe that's because so much of the South was birthed around it and on it and through it. Particularly in the South, though, racism is diverse. It's a black and white thing for the most part. Um, I remember as a boy in the 70s, I remember going to a gas station with a dirt ground on a dirt road and hearing my grandfather get out of the truck and say to the full-service gas attendant, tell the in boy to fill it up. You know, And he said it as if it meant nothing. To him, it it didn't mean anything. I remember driving past Stone Mountain in Atlanta uh, one time and seeing a great big hooded dude standing there in a a bright red robe with a big pointy hat and a full mask and everything, holding balloons like it was a carnival and waving people as they drove by, pointing down the road uh, that that we passed, pointing down this road that I assume went to a rally. I, I don't know, but... Um, and it went the other way too. I remember, uh, me and a friend going to a mall when I was uh, in the eighties, when I was a young teen, going to a mall that we'd been to several times. But what we didn't know is that it had, as they say there, gone black because there was a new mall that was built in town and all of the white kids started going there. So when we got to this mall we'd been to in the past, now it was gone black. And 
you know, we, we were cool. We tried to be cool there, but we still got jumped by eight guys uh, in the middle of the arcade with people all around. I get knocked out in the floor before I even, I don't even get a chance to swing. Got hit in the back of the head, knocked out, flat in the floor um, for being white in the black mall. Now, I, I hate racism. I'm going to tell you right now, I hate it. I can't stand it. It makes me furious on every single level. I cannot stand it. And I'm sure there's the arguments out there for whatever the critical word is that, that, that I got something in me that by nature makes me racist. I'm not even getting into all that. I don't even care about all that. But I can tell you I honestly hate it with, with a passion. And I will most definitely speak against it on any level. I even serve in the school where the vast majority is anything but white. Uh, white is by far the minority there. But we're not talking, I'm not trying to talk about t- politics here or get into that. What I'm, what I'm talking about is Jesus. So what does Jesus have to do with all of that? Well, today in what we're looking at in this text, Jesus crosses barriers for sure. He crosses geographic borders. He crosses sexist borders. He crosses racial borders. And not to offer like reconciliation of man to man here. He crosses it to offer restoration with God. Big difference. Big difference. So here's your one point. It's on your sheet. Remember this. Sharing the hope of Christ with the world includes those that might require us to sacrifice our own prejudices for the sake of them hearing the truth. In love. In love. Verse 1, John 4. We're going to cover a bit here, but I promise we're going to go quick. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus didn't actually baptize them, it was his disciples that were doing it. By the way, quick, fast note, baptism matters. There, here it is again. I mean, Jesus and his disciples are baptizing people as well as John. John and his. Verse 3, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. Near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, way back in Genesis. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about the sixth hour, or noon. That's about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Where his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So this Sychar town, they go to buy food. This well is just outside of town. And here Jesus sits and this Samaritan woman comes. He says, give me a drink. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Calling him a Jew here was probably not something that she said kindly. How is it that you, a Jew... It was probably a derogatory, almost certainly a derogatory statement from her. Second uh, Kings 17, you can read it in your own time, tells about how Samaria was born. Basically, way back after David died, Israel split into north and south. And the north was Samaria, the south was Judea. Centuries later, Assyria, we've talked about all this, Assyria conquers the northern kingdom of Samaria in 722 B.C. and scatters all of those people everywhere and then brings in all these pagan people from other nations and resettles them on that same land. And what ends up happening is the few Jews that remained begin to mix with the people and the pagan people from other nations that were resettled there and they produce a mixed race. Babylon 
Years later, in 586, conquers Judah, the southern kingdom, conquers it, and takes them into exile. And then when they come home, 70 years later, they begin to rebuild Jerusalem. Well, as they're rebuilding Jerusalem, Samaria now has descended in their mind into a complete, complete pagan and honest disgusting place in their mindset they see these mixed breed jews as something they have complete racism against and towards and by the four centuries later when jesus shows up that has gotten so out of control that they won't even touch the ground even the ground is cursed that is known as samaria jews were considered unclean if they stepped on samaritan soil no kidding They'd have to purify themselves before they came back to the temple. And so instead, they would journey all the way around and not even touch it. Jesus, on the other hand, goes straight through it, which is epic. Look at this. uh, I think I have. uh, Do you guys have the? uh, There you go. So you can see the shaded spot is Samaria. So if you were coming from the south, like Jerusalem, and you were going to the north, to Galilee, you had to go through it. So you can see the little dotted line. They would go all the way around so they didn't even touch the ground. The, The other line is Jesus' path. He goes straight Right straight through it. Um, John notes that Jews had no dealings with Samaritans right there. A Jew was not permitted to have a business venture with a Samaritan. But it went way past that. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders, had put these other laws in place, not scripture, but other laws in place, that uh, no acts were permitted that would in any way obligate you. To a Samaritan. In other words, you couldn't even receive a gift or charity because then you might, by nature of obligation, owe them something. So you couldn't even receive anything. So when, what sounds demanding of Jesus here, give me a drink to this woman, is actually way more shocking than that. The fact that he's asking a Samaritan to give him a drink is mind-blowing. And this woman is, is blown by it. Blown. Samaritans felt the same way about Jews. They felt exactly the same way. In fact, maybe even worse at times, they considered themselves Jews when the Jews were blessed and things were great and prosperous, but they also had no part of the Jewish people when things were tough or difficult or when they were being persecuted or suffering or invaded. The Samaritans were known for misleading Jews into traps in order to beat them and even kill them. Uh, the women of the, Samar- the Samaritan women were known to be disgusted by the Jewish men. In particular, there was nothing worse than a Jewish man to a Samaritan woman, and they would spit at him. This is also, if you know the story in Luke, what is it, 10, of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells that parable. This is why that parable is so shocking. Like, to the Jews, if somebody was beaten on a road, it would have been because a Samaritan did it. But in Jesus' parable, the Samaritan's the only person who shows love to the one who was beaten. You can read that in your own time. And one other note, instead of Jerusalem, the Samaritans had created their own worship center on this mountain called Mount Gerizim. All right. And this mountain overshadows Sychar and this well. So as they're sitting at this well, there's this mountain overshadowing them right there. And that is the mountain that the Samaritans replaced Jerusalem with as a place of worship. They also, the Samaritans, did use the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Same ones that we have, same ones the Jews had. They used the same ones. And they were pretty exclusive about those. However, they changed it all to get rid of anything that said Jerusalem 
Or anything that said Mount Moriah, which is where Jerusalem is, they changed to Mount Gerizim. So they just changed it all to rule out everything. All right, so there's your glorious background of why this is a big deal that this two, these two are talking. So look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty. Or have to come here and draw water. I think she's almost being sarcastic at him a little bit. Uh, Jesus' entire approach here begins with, if you knew who is speaking. And her response is, are you greater? Like, that is the ultimate question, guys. The greatest question you will ever have to answer in all of your entire existence. That, that, that's it. If you knew who was speaking to you, And are you greater? He said, if you knew the gift of God. That's funny. He didn't say if you knew what the gift of God is. He said, if you knew the gift of God. Meaning the gift of God is a person. You can know it. And he tells her in verse 26, I am he. He's talking about himself here using different language, but he's talking about himself. Jesus is naturally thirsty, so he stops. This approach is cool. He's naturally thirsty, so he stops for a drink. Nothing unusual about that at all. But then he creates thirst in her, so she's going to ask him for a drink. See how he did that? It's a perfect approach to evangelism. All right, so she questions Jesus' ability. Like, can you produce something more than this well? Are you more skilled than he who dug this? It's 100 feet deep, and it's been here for millennia, like 1,000-plus years. It's been here producing water. You're you're telling me you can do better than that? And Jesus points out that the well that he's going to provide, the well that she's going to here anyway, it it, it might provide refreshment and stuff, but you're going to be thirsty again. You're going to need it again, and you're going to need it again, and you're going to need it again. And it might always be there to provide water, but you're going to keep needing it. And he's saying the well that he's going to provide is going to be totally different. He says, I'm going to find water in your soul. That's what he's saying here. He's saying that the place where he is going to find water is in the soul of a person. And when he digs there, it's going to burst into this flood of living water. That's what he's talking about. Living water spiritually. And it will never leave you thirsty. It will always fully satisfy you no matter how hard or dry your heart is. Once he makes that fissure and lets that water in, it changes everything. Living water, by the way, is not new. It's all over the Old Testament, and it is also a person. Just like the gift of God was a person, living water is a person. Look at Jeremiah 2.13. You don't have to turn to it. I think we got it on the board. But it says this. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me. The fountain of living waters and hewned out cisterns for themselves. I'm not trying to read all of it. I just want you to see he's calling himself God, calling himself living waters. Uh, later on in the same book, Jeremiah 17, 13, 
It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall uh, be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, the fountain of living water. Same thing, calling him living water. And then Jesus explains what he means later in John, in chapter 7. Jesus, not talking to the woman now, but explains what living water is. Verse 37, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So here, if you stop there, he's calling himself living water, and he is. So in the Old Testament, we just read, Jehovah, Yahweh, Jehovah is living water. Jesus says, I am living water. And then he goes on, verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit whom those believed in him were to receive. Uh, so all three, God, the father, God, the son, God, the spirit, that that is living water. And Jesus says, that's going to be mined out of you. It's going to be something that, that dwells in you. Look back at verse 14, back in the text there. John 4, look at 14. Whoever uh, drinks of this water, look what he says. He talks about it will become, it's welling up to eternal life. I don't know what y'all know about wells. I don't really know much. But I do know in the desert, wells is a big deal. Uh, but a well, you, you dig down. Until you hit water. Now, there's ways to determine if there's water there, but I ain't going into all that. Either way, once you determine this is where the well is going to be, you dig down until you hit a spot where water begins to seep through a fissure. And then you allow that water to start filling up that well. I don't know how far up it goes. It may go all the way up. It may only go up a certain way. It may only go a certain distance and it may even run dry. But this well that Jacob dug for millennia has continued to produce produce water which is amazing i mean it's pretty much a miracle it's it's amazing but jesus is saying when he digs into our dry thirsty desert heart when he digs he'll create a fissure of water in our dead souls and it will begin to fill and fill and fill without slowing from that moment, Jesus said, into eternity, welling up. It will continue. It never stops. It will always fill. Into eternity, it will always fill. That's awesome because that means there's always more of Christ to have. There's always more of the Spirit to have. There's always more of the Father to have. Always. For eternity, there's more. It continues to well up. Thinking he's been literal, she asked him immediately, <laughs> Yeah, well, give it to me. Let's have it. Well, Jesus responds by pointing specifically to her heart. Look what he says in verse 16. Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you know what? You're right. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband, implying he belongs to someone else. What you've said is true. Man. I ain't got to unpack that. That's just, man, talk about taking shots. Let's, let's remember where he's at now. <laughs> this is not a safe place to begin with. He is a Jew in a place where people hate Jews, right at the foot of their holy mountain. And he's just taken the Samaritan woman there. You know what I mean? 
But before, before you get too crazy with it, he didn't just jump into address and sin. Remember, he started by offering hope. He started by creating thirst. And then when she's seeking, then he says, hey, there's something in your life that you know is wrong. He didn't try to trick her through some math problem into realizing she broke the Ten Commandments, you know, or whatever else. However, whatever the trick, the, you know, the evangelism trick of the day was. He, he recognized, he pointed to her something that she already knew was not okay. It was probably already causing hurt. Nobody wants to be married five times and then be with somebody else's husband. It was probably already causing hurt. I don't know what she's been through, but we're all human and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what her life must be like. Under those circumstances, probably already causing great depression, probably causing anxiety. There's no doubt it was causing anxiety. Um, I don't know. And I realize, hey, that's easy for him. He's God. He knows that. But we can do the same thing. Just listen to people. If you just, or ask, you ain't got to ask, hey, what's the worst thing you ever did? I don't mean that, but like listen to people. And just, a lot of times people will let a little bit of their heart out. And if you have created, if you have created thirst in them already for the gospel or for Christ, then, then they're going to open about some things. You know what I mean? But yeah, he points it right out here. He points it right out. <laughs> and she wants to know more. And you'll see this in verse 19 in a second. She wants to know more, but now she's uncomfortable talking about herself. Whoa, 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 whoa. We're not going to talk about me. So she asks what like real worship should look like and all of that, uh, noting that he's a prophet and he should know those things. Uh, it's funny. If you've ever shared the gospel uh, with somebody, obviously, who's not a believer, but if you've ever shared the gospel, it is, happens pretty commonly. If you get around to talking about personal sin or people's sin, they'll change the subject quick. Usually, they'll drop a deep question on you. Some deep theological question like, hey, what about the dinosaurs? Where were they at? Or how did they get all those animals on the Bible? Or where did all the people come from if it were just Adam and Eve? Where did Cain get his wife? Like all these random questions. Or they'll just go after, hey, what about the contradictions in the Bible? Which, by the way, if anybody ever throws that one at you, ask them to show you one. Most people believe there's contradictions, but they couldn't point two out to save their life because there's not any. Okay? So, but, but, or they'll go to the fact, well, it's written by man, it's got errors, whatever. They, they just, let's get the spotlight off of me. And look at verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, pointing Mount Gerizim here. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she throws this theological question. Where's the proper mountain for worship? Whatever. Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here. By the way, he's the Jew from where salvation comes. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus doesn't dismiss her here, by the way. He doesn't say, no, 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 no. We're talking about you and your, your filthy you know, sin over here. He doesn't say that. He doesn't like try to pin her to the wall and say, don't change the subject. Uh, but he doesn't sugarcoat his answer either. He answers her question, but, but he, ain't, he says, you're wrong. The Jews are right. Drop the mic. I mean, that's what it, when he says, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. Salvation's from the Jews. That's straight to answer your question. Wrong mountain, right mountain down there. You're wrong. 
I mean, straight tells her. But it's not about him being a Jew and them being Samaritans. It's because that's what Scripture says. But he's, he's just standing on the word. That's what the word says. But consider, man, how that might have come across. After all the progress we've made, we come to this point. If I tell the truth here, I'm going to wreck it all. We're going to end this con- con- conversation on an insult. And I don't know about you guys, but it's real easy to try to back away from that or dodge it or skirt it or get around it or worm out of it because it's going to be a hard truth to say, but the truth matters and he drops it on her. When Jesus says a time is coming and now is here, how can it be both? How can it be a time is coming and now is here at the same time? Well, because he's the Jew salvation is coming from. He's the Jew that's going to change everything. And he is not gone to the cross, which is where all that's going to happen. But he's headed there. And within a few years, it's going to happen. So the time is coming because he's not gone to the cross yet. But the time is here because he's about to at the same time. In truth, it says, worship in truth. What does that mean? We could do a whole sermon on that, and we're not going to, because I can answer it in just two words. Honesty. Honesty and confession. Like, remember, the topic here is her sin, like confession. Like, you want to worship God? We want to come in here, we sing these songs, I'm part of it. We sing these songs, do you you mean it or are you just following the bouncing ball? And maybe you are sometimes. That's okay. I'm not mad at you for that. Music styles are different. People's tastes are different. That's okay. I'm not mad at you for that. But I'm saying, are you being truthful? Like, do you actually mean the words that you're saying? Even if you are following the bouncing ball, do you mean the words you're saying? If not, then close your mouth. Like, if, if you're extending it as worship, do you mean what you're saying? And then are you coming in here honest, man? Are, are you coming in here with a whole lot of garbage that you want to leave? Like, Lord, I want this out of my life. Forgive me. Or are you coming in here with, okay, I'll check the box and be here today, but I'm going to go right back to whatever it is I came out of. You know, that's worship in truth. Worship in spirit is because the temple is about to be destroyed shortly after his death and resurrection. Uh, and the hearts of his people are going to become his temple. And what he's trying to say by that is he's going to be worshipped wherever his people are. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. Now, if you did, I've been there. If you did, you will find no temple. In fact, you'll find a mosque. There is no temple there. Uh, because God, 2,000 years later, the temple of Christ is still within our hearts. And we take that wherever. And we, that's what he means by worshiping in spirit. A little bit more and we'll finish this up. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, that means Christ means Messiah. Christ is the Greek word for it. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. And they marveled that he was talking to a woman, but nobody said, you know, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar. That's pretty cool. It's kind of like the disciples who dropped their nets. She left her jar and she went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Messiah, the Christ? And they went out of the town and they're coming to him. So she goes, look, I'm not going to go back through it, but if you were paying attention, she went from calling him a Jew to calling him sir to calling him a prophet to now calling him a Messiah. 
from a Jew in a derogatory way to now Messiah. Straight, straight through. And Jesus plainly identifies himself as the Messiah. Verse 26 outright says it. So either he was or he was a liar. And you can close your book because you're wasting your time here. He said it himself, guys. He said it black and white, plain as day. I'm he. So either he was the Messiah or he was a liar. And this whole book now is a waste of your time. Because if you can't trust that, you can't trust him. There's nothing to be gained. But that means that if you still trust this book, then that's who he was. The disciples are freaked out, man. Jesus is doing something so taboo here. It's not against scripture, but it sure is against the Jewish people. Not just the Samaritan side of things, but he's talking to a woman. As a rabbi, many of the Jewish leaders believed that if you spoke too long to a woman, and if she happened to be somebody else's wife and you didn't know it, then you were pretty much immediately damned to hell. So they didn't even speak to their own wives very often. I'm not saying it sarcastically. Like That's in their text of beliefs. So for him to be sitting there talking to her, was he alone with a woman? I don't know. It doesn't say that. We don't have to guess, assume, or whatever. But the point of the matter is he's talking to a woman. That's the issue that they're freaking out about. Not just a woman, a very sinful woman and a Samaritan woman. Trash in their eyes. But look at the result of this. The evangelism, the missions, the discipleship all working together. She goes and she tells her friends, I don't think she just went into town with a bullhorn. I think she went into town super excited. It was surely a small town. And is telling her friends and telling the people that she knows pretty quickly and is creating a stir and a buzz. And very quickly people are like, what? What are you talking Maybe they only hear Messiah or this is Messiah or could it be Messiah. And, and she's excited and she's jumping up and down and whatever. Whatever it does, it causes this crowd to come back behind her to see this person. I think that's a cool way that evangelism should grow. We share our faith. Somebody truly believes It should create excitement in them. It should create joy in them. They should want to share it with, they don't got to go out on the street corners and preach at the crowds, but they might want to tell their mom. They might want to tell their dad. They might want to tell their kids, man. They might want to tell their friends. They want to get excited about it and tell somebody, and it creates this kind of stir in whatever environment it is in, which is awesome. And the question is, can Jesus really be the Messiah? Do you think Jesus actually could be the Messiah? Great question. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I got food that you don't even know about. And the disciples were like, what is he talking about? Somebody brought him food to eat? What, 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 did he got something in his pocket? Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say... Do you not say, excuse me, there are four months and then comes the harvest. Well, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and look. I guarantee you he's pointing them towards the crowd coming towards them. The fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others labored, but now you've entered into their labor. He says a couple of things here really quick. He says, you're missing the meal. The meal is, is, is an opportunity to have a full heart instead of a full stomach. Like you have an opportunity to have a full heart 
And he's pointing them to this crowd. Look at this crowd of people coming to us. They're standing there too now. Coming to us, to me, to, to, to you as disciples. They're coming here. And, and immediately they have moved in that direction from this woman who just went and told them. I mean, they're already reaping. I mean, this is like a crazy revival moment. Like, they're already reaping the efforts of what this woman had gone and sown by saying a handful of words to a bunch of people out of excitement. They didn't even have to wait. They're already coming. And surely there may have been people that came through, maybe disciples of John who had shared the, the truth there. Maybe there was ground that had been worked there before. I don't know. Either way. The reaping was at hand, and they were about to be blessed with it. You know what I'm saying? That's huge. The kingdom of heaven receives this harvest, and all of them get to share in it. I can promise you, and all of you know, because you live here on some level, we are definitely not the first church in Arizona. We're not the first church in Tempe. We're not the first church that got planted in Tempe. Um, But I can promise you what we've been doing here is... Salt River Community Church is planting a seed. What does that look like in terms of reaping a harvest? I I don't know. Maybe we'll be here for that. Maybe it's next week. Maybe it's six weeks from now. Maybe it's next year. Maybe we don't get to be here for it. Maybe somebody else, the generation ahead, gets it. I don't know. I don't know who, but but we're in it together. We get to celebrate it together because what we're reaping is not grain that we're going to eat and satisfy our stomach with. It's broken people, man. It's people that are hurting. It's people that are struggling. It's people that are lost. It's people that are confused. People that are angry. People that have had five husbands and are still alone. It's people that have been through cancer. It's people that have been through... Broken homes, it's people that have lost children, it's people that don't, don't have answers. And, and they're coming to find our Messiah. They're coming to find salvation, a Savior, our Messiah. Look at the way it ends, last bit, verse 39. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Um, doesn't mean he read my mind and told me about my past. She's saying he, he knew, he knew my sin. He saw straight through me. Like the word of God is sharper than a double edged sword. As Hebrew says, piercing to joint and marrow to the heart. That's what she's saying here. He pierced my heart. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of you, sorry, excuse me, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard our, for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The fact that all come out to meet this Jew and invite him to stay is not half as mind-blowing as the fact that he did for two days, stayed for two days with them. Think about that. These dudes would not even walk on the turf. He stays for two days. He's in somebody's home. He's eating their food. You know, he's talking to them about the word. Her testimony obviously was powerful, but it didn't convert anybody. It led led them to him. Her testimony led them to him. I don't care how great your testimony is. People say, oh, Dave, man, you got such a good testimony because I have a stupid drug past. I don't care. 
Like, I don't care. I want you to see Jesus. Like, a lot of, you want to know why? Because there's plenty of people who don't know Jesus and have overcome drug problems. If all you see is that I had drug problem and I don't have one now and miss Christ, then, then, then my, there's no testimony here. You know, I, my testimony, your testimony, your testimony, it should draw people, not to you, it should draw people to Jesus. Like, point them to him somehow. And that's what hers does. And then they discover that he's who he says he is. He's their savior. How did they figure that out? Miracles? Nope. Didn't say he did any miracles. Well, he did miracles all over Israel. He didn't do miracles in Samaria. They didn't need miracles. His word was enough. Think about that. His word is what he said. Because of his word, his word was enough. I say it every week, but is this enough for you right here? Like, is this enough for you? That's the same thing. It's his word. That's what they had. And then they came to believe that he was their savior. Not just yours, lady. Mine too. Not just mine. The whole world. This started between a Jew and a Samaritan. Have no business communicating. Racism, sexism, the whole deal. And politicism, the whole extreme, every extreme you can come to between those two people. And before the story is done, he's the savior of the whole world. Everybody, everywhere, all people. Stand up with me if you don't mind and we'll close. Um, and I ask you guys to close your eyes. Uh, again, I don't do that to be dramatic or crazy. I, I do it because I want you to remove your distractions for just a minute and just think on what we're talking about. And we go into a song. We're going to do a song, but I still I do it too. I want I want there to be a moment of pause, like where you can think a second and not be looking at whatever's next on your agenda, just for a minute. Just put your mind alone with God. The, the, the one sentence was sharing the hope of Jesus with the world includes those that might require us to sacrifice our own prejudices for the sake of them hearing the truth. What prejudices you got? Uh, be honest with you. It's just you in the dark right now if you got your eyes closed. I'm, I'm not asking for you to confess anything to me and I'm not asking for you to defend anything. I'm just asking you. How about here in the valley? Like, who are you not willing to go to in the valley? Be honest. Like, is it because you've got nothing in common? Is it because you're afraid that uh, they're not going to accept you or they don't want to hear it from you or they don't, they don't, they're not going to like you anyway? They, them. You know, is it a native thing? Is it a Mexican thing? I don't know. Is it, is it a social thing? Is it, is it homosexuality? Is it, is it some social status that, that, that you're not okay with and not willing to bit, communicate with? Is it belief systems, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness? If, if you say none of those are a problem for you, then my next question is, are you doing anything? About, are you going to them then? And, and look, if you're here today and you haven't said Jesus is my Savior then I got good news because he's the savior of the world. That means you have the same access. He can be yours. The good news is whatever your sins are, they don't got to define you. I don't know what they are. You do. Whatever they are, whatever that list is or whatever it is that, that, that might be the worst, 
that you can't let go of or you can't get past or won't let go of you, it doesn't have to define you. The only way to be free of that, though, is to let it be on the cross. That's what the cross is about. Jesus, you take my sin. Jesus, you take my sin. Separate me from it. Forgive me. I trust you. I believe in you. You're my Savior. Let my heart be your temple. Pull living water out of my heart. These are the things you tell him and and mean it. He'll change everything. Lord, you are awesome. Thank you again for your word. And thank you for the privilege of sharing it together with brothers and sisters that are here that are not beneath me. They're family to me. And, and I look up to some of the people in this room even. Lord, I thank you that we get to all sit level at your feet and hear from your word. And I thank you, God, that we take it with us wherever we go. I pray today, Lord, if there's people that need to be baptized, if there's people that need to be part of this church, Lord, if there's people that need to be saved, let them confess it today. Let today be the day where everything changes. One week after Easter, 2023, it all changed for me. Lord, I love you. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.